This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Gracious Lord, for those to whom your message is familiar and those to whom your message is not familiar, we pray, Father, that we will hear your word. We pray, Lord, that your, my words will be clear and that if there's any stubbornness in our hearts, that you will help us to overcome this by your spirit. I pray, Father, for the children, that they would really be blessed as they study your word as well. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So, what does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean to pray, to go to church, to live a moral and upright life, to obey the Ten Commandments? <clears throat> Is Christianity more than the doctrinal truths that we know and see in the scriptures? In our, um, in our passage today we did, in the liturgy, it quoted Matthew 22, which says, to, lo- to love the Lord, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. But what does it mean to follow Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? By looking at the example of Mary today and the words of Jesus, we are going to explore what it means to follow Jesus. Mary highlights the actions and Jesus the principles. I'm just going to read the verse 24 to 26 again. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus in verse 24 says that to follow him means that to hate your life in this world, you will need to lose your life to discover it. At first glance, this doesn't make sense. Who wants to lose their life? But because Jesus says it, we pay more attention to what he is saying and we try and discover the meaning of it. Actually, when you die to self, it is the birth of your true life and potential. Like the mustard seed, the solution to finding our life is counterintuitive, as it is only with our apparent death to self that we discover the way to salvation. It's only when the seed in its watery grave dies that it actually becomes itself. And this is against our instincts, which are to put ourselves at the center and first. My profession is I'm a social worker. And I want to share some reflections on the role of self in depression. Part of my work is helping to put in place mental health services for children affected by violence. And we know globally depression statistics are very high. They say 120 million people worldwide suffer from depression. About 850,000 people die a year. Now, in my profession in strengthening social welfare services and helping with mental health services, I've seen the devastating impact that mental health illnesses, including depression, has on children and families. However, with support, including engaging with peers, building resilience and coping strategies, children's situations can be normalized and they can get back onto the learning curve and realize their potential. My observation is that one of the most effective counseling techniques can be 
through encouraging the affected person to reach out to serve other people. That is to put their self to death. Instead of to continuously reflect on their situation. What this does is it helps to give perspective to your own circumstances and moves the focus away from oneself, which isn't healthy. If I can give an illustration, we do a group with about 12 children and a mediator, and we ask the child to identify what his or her fear is. And normally through drawing, they write down what their fear is. And then what they do is they actually give the fear to the child next to them. And they ask the child next to them, what do you think can be done here to help your neighbor to overcome his fear? And it's a very effective way of a child actually gaining better perspective. Now, returning to the passage, we see Mary's example of what it means to serve Jesus. Just to acknowledge, I'm extracting a number of my ideas from a preacher called Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He says three things. He says that to serve Jesus means to firstly abandon your pride, to discern or understand his death, and to give him all you have. So looking at the passage, and feel welcome to open it in front of you in John 12, the context in this verse is we had the Lord paying a visit to his friends. He came up out of country six days before Passover to Bethany, which is not far from here. He lodged with a friend, Lazarus, who had recently he had raised from the dead. So the summary of verses two to eight is that Jesus is at dinner in his honor. Uh, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment or nard. She anointed his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house is filled with the expensive fragrance. And then we see Judas's response where he says, you shouldn't be doing this. And then we see Jesus's response as well. So the first point to make is that to be a Christian means to abandon our pride. Mary has done a number of highly unusual and in a Middle Eastern context demeaning or even disgraceful things. She has firstly washed Jesus' feet. Now it's not summer here at the moment, but in the climate in the time of Jesus, it was most common for people to wear sandals and to walk around barefoot with their daily activities. Their feet were constantly exposed and they got dirty. So the washing of the master's feet by the slave was actually seen as one of the lowest forms of servitude performed only by slaves in bondage. In some municipalities, it was even illegal for slaves to have to wash the feet of their masters. Secondly, Mary wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. Now this is remarkable as for a woman to untie her hair in this Middle Eastern context was not done. But instead of her even using a towel, she uses her hair to uh, anoint the feet of Jesus, which is demeaning and lowly in a world's perspective. Mary's actions, what do they indicate? They indicate an expression of intense personal devotion to Jesus. Mary is saying, I know who you are, you deserve honor, and I don't care what anyone thinks. I know who you are. Do we care what anyone thinks in our own lives? What voices are we listening to? That of the world? Mary could have easily said, no, 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 I can't do such a lowly thing. Or of the flesh, gosh, that is really grim. I couldn't do something, it's so dirty. Or the devil, which may have said to Mary, Mary, you're not worthy, what are you doing? Or do we listen to the Holy Spirit? 
One of the strongest stumbling blocks in serving God is by the need to be cool. That is, living for the approval of men and not of God. We live in a time when people feel they're entitled to things. Many things of this age are termed as entitlements. Voices tell us, you deserve better. I've actually brought a cup in today. I'm sure you know this cup. We have a big poster on our house. house. It says, keep calm and carry on. But actually, I've seen that cup changed and to say, keep calm, you deserve better. The problem is that many of these attitudes have been applied to God. People believe we are entitled to certain things from him. They shout loudly, God owes me. The impulse, this impulse can manifest in two ways, when it meets success or failure. When this deep impulse meets with success, it takes different forms. Some people become takers, and because of their perceived specialness, they feel they can help themselves to the world. Recently in our home group, we were looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we commented on how the term meekness can be incorrectly interpreted to mean weak, passive, a bit like a doormat. But in actual fact, it is strength under control or strength reined in. Someone who is meek does not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength. Many of us sadly know of people who will stop at nothing to achieve worldly success, and they do so often at the expense of others. So when this impulse of God owes me meets with success, it can thus turn into shallowness and manipulation. If we are to follow Jesus, it means we need to abandon these airs of dignity and how it looks to our peers. Look at Mary. Though she doesn't fully understand, she knows who he is and what she owes him. Only at that point, when we drop our airs of dignity, can we get on with our lives and serve him? The second point is when this impulse meets with a disappointing life. We say life isn't fair. God is unfair. And what happens? We can become self-righteous and bitter. Pride drains us of our empathy, our humanity. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to die to self and give up your right to happiness. In the story of Job, The Lord confronted Job for implying that God owed him something for being righteous. By the end of the story, Job recognizes God is not beholden to mankind for anything. In our own lives, do we claim that God owes us because of our good works or the sacrifices we have made? Even if we obey him perfectly, God does not owe us. This is religiosity where we claim God owes us because of our own good works. So instead, it is when we abandon our pride, our right to ourselves, and recognize that God owes us nothing, and instead we home everything that we find our humanity. It is at the point that we realize nothing is beneath our dignity to serve Jesus that we become alive. A word of caution, there's often the misunderstanding that self-denial is the same as death of self. Christians are often stereotyped as being killjoys, as illustrated in a survey in America where people said that evangelical Christians are the least desirable neighbors. It's important to know that God treasures your divinely created self. 
He doesn't want to obliterate the part of you that makes you uniquely you. Rather, he works and reshapes you into the person who's not self-absorbed, but carefree of what other people think, yet still caring for others. The second point is that following Jesus means discerning or understanding his death. Why is Mary doing what she is doing? What is her motivation? Motivation is essential to following Jesus. Why are you trying to please and emulate him in your lives if you are? There are a couple of motivations. I could think of five for why people follow Jesus. And I ask ourselves the question, are any of these motivations apparent in our lives? Firstly, for keeping up appearances. The idea that going to church and being a follower makes you respectable and a moral person. I recognize this is less so in more secular Western uh, cultures, but in my culture raised in South Africa, at least at university, there was a very big um, culture around going to church. Secondly, nostalgia. The idea that you've gone to church your whole life, maybe you sang in the choir and it's a familiar place, or the Anglican liturgy could be nostalgic and make you feel at ease. Gosh, I can think I used to sing in a choir and I'm quite sure that many of the people stopped going to church for that reason alone. (laughs) Thirdly, bargaining motivation. The idea is that you're trying to cut a deal with God. I need his help for something. And if I follow him and I do something, I have this hotline to his help. So I emulate him. I give to the poor. I don't lie and such. Fourthly, a guilt trip motivation. This is where I'm desperately trying to convince God that I am a worthy person. Person, I make a moral and religious effort to please him. I will go to extremes to show God that I am worthy. Lastly, the insurance policy. The idea that God will be there for me if something goes wrong. So if I die in my back pockets, I have a monthly subscription of going to church once a month that if I die, I know that I will go to heaven. The reality though, is that none of these motivations will make you a Christian because they are either too half-hearted or crushing. So, to follow Jesus, we need to discern that his death means we are forgiven and we are blameless before God. We do not need to get our life in order through religiosity or external actions. Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher, has a very helpful analogy. He says, instead of us stapling fruits of the spirit, such as love, kindness, self-control, onto our lives artificially, we need to change from within. That is, the tree needs to change from within. Our man-made motivations have the power to crush and to injure us. This makes me think of shaping glass. We used to live in Namibia, in Swaziland. We lived in Namibia as well, but we used to live in Swaziland. And there used to be a glass factory called Nguenya glass, and you you could stand up on the platform and observe as they made the glass. Well, the reality is we all know with glass that if you try and bend glass when it's cold, it breaks. And as we now know, we moved to a number of countries, our glasses are all broken. The idea being that glass can be shaped when it is heated, but not when it is cold. The point here is, If you are trying to shape the glass when it is cold, it is like stapling fruits of the spirit artificially onto your lives. You are fighting against your natural instincts and it will hurt. For instance, you will say, I won't lie, but you do. Or you'll say, no, I'm going to be as pure as I can, but you can't. Until the spirit works in your heart to change you, it will be very difficult. 
It will be like bending your character artificially. However, being in his spirit will reshape you in God's incredible way and will change you. For example, you will find forgiveness for the person who grievously injured you or compassion for someone who you previously disliked. I want to, uh, allow me to indulge myself with a, a testimony. I, we used to live in Sierra Leone uh, for a while during the Ebola crisis. And um, a Christian colleague once challenged me when I was working there. I was working with the UN, with government and civil society organizations, and we were trying to put in place services for children um, at a time when children were honestly being left to die on their own in houses because they were scared of the infection. So it was really tragic. And I was increasingly frustrated and angry by the corruption I was witnessing firsthand through a senior official who had the power to prevent us from reaching the most vulnerable children. She reminded me of Ephesians 6, which says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in heavenly realms. At this point, I was able to forgive and hand this over to God to work not in my own strength, but in his strength. And in some miraculous ways, we were able to actually get services to those children. Some people, when they're trying to follow Jesus and change, will say, I'm no good and I cannot do this. I can't hand over that sin which I've been harboring for years. The reason I follow Christ is to be acceptable. Jesus replies and says, don't be a fool. I love you, I bore the blame for you, and my love has fully satisfied the demands of the law. You do not have to be acceptable to come before me. As we sang today, I'm accepted because you were condemned. Thus, if you understand his death, you can follow Christ because you recognize that his gift of salvation is a free gift and there's nothing we can do to earn it. If you don't accept it and you believe you need to earn it, then you are a moralist and you will bend and hurt yourself and others trying to be like Christ. So in summary, what does following Christ mean so far? It means abandoning our pride, recognizing that he owes you nothing and we owe him everything. And it means understanding his death. Because of what he did on the cross, which he gave you freely, you can have a clear conscience. You can have a future with glory and hope and in the power of the present to change. The third point is that following Christ means giving him all you have. Mary gave a really expensive gift. Apparently 300 denarii is worth a year's salary. How many people do we love so much as to give a year's salary to? From Judas, from Judas's perspective, this is out of proportion. He would say something about like, let's be reasonable now, Mary. Let's not be fanatical. It's okay to follow Jesus, but really, we could have put this money to a better purpose. But how does Jesus respond? He responds and tells Judas to leave her alone as he knows that in the light of the sacrifice there is nothing extravagant. This reminds us of the passage of Matthew 13, 45 where the kingdom of heaven is likened to a pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. When we abandon our pride and discern his death recognizing it as beautiful and a priceless pearl we will be more than willing 
to sacrifice and exchange our earthly temporary joys for the eternal things of God. But what will it cost you to follow Jesus? Jesus is saying you can't follow him without an understanding or or a discernment of his death. So there's nothing in your life you would not be willing to give up for him. Your attitude should totally change. Yes, it could cost you a relationship. It could cost you a job. It could cost you the promotion. Yet the love I lose in that relationship or the additional salary or the status that I may gain is nothing compared to what you would get in Christ. Or it could cost you comfort and security. Or you may fall afoul of certain people you need to help you to get forward. But the security I'm losing is nothing compared to the security I gain when I survey his wondrous cross and perceive that he is the creator of the universe. Let's think of um, Isaiah 40, which says, who else holds the oceans in his hands or marks the sky with a pen or um, knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains of the hills on a scale. Timothy Keller refers to the idea of having different biblical or spiritual accounting procedures when we discern his death. What he means is that when you see the king in his beauty, like Mary the Pearl, and see the light of his being, you will have a totally different accounting process. Then what happens, counterintuitively, is our character changes, naturally. We become people of kindness, generosity, and self-control and love. It's like a seed dying. It doesn't really die. It becomes itself. It is the beginning of you. Following Christ means giving all you are. He doesn't want your things. He wants you. But we need to recognize that the hardest thing to give is to give in. If there are any ifs or conditions in our service of Christ, then you are the master and he is the servant. I want to close with a story. Um, And I've done some research and it says, some research says it's fiction and some research says it's not fiction, but I think it's a really good story. Ignacia Jan Pederewski was a famous uh, Polish pianist. He died in 1941. And apparently his concerts were sold out for six months straight in New York. And one night, a mother brought his nine-year-old son, hoping to inspire him to continue his lessons. I think I need to do this with my three boys as well. Shortly before the concert was to begin, she looked up to the stage and to a horror saw that he had opened the huge Steinway piano. The audience grew tense, and the boy started playing chopsticks. As the ushers began moving towards the young boy to quickly move him away, and the audience was saying, come on, get off, Peter Risky himself came up on stage and tiptoed up behind the boy, and he whispered in the child's ear, don't give up, keep playing, you're doing great. And as the boy continued, Peter Risky put his arms around and began to play a concerto based on the tune of Pederiski. By God's standards, our best efforts are a bit like the boy's attempts at chopsticks. And yet the beauty is he can take hold of them and turn them into something exquisite. We can feel frustrated with our own lack of progress in various areas, but remember, God sees our heart, our desires, and our motivations. 
just as he did Mary's. In summary and closing, following Jesus as shown by Mary means abandoning our pride. It means understanding his death and giving him all we have. So if you feel like we are bumbling along with little obvious sense of progress, but actually you've given it your best in whatever pursuit for his glory, God draws near to you, just like Peter Whiskey, and he says, don't give up. Keep on playing. You're doing great. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word. Thank you that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that it would comfort us and challenge us, Lord. Help us, Jesus, to abandon our our pride, our airs of dignity. Help us, Lord, to serve you no matter how demeaning it may be in in the eyes of the world. I pray, Father, that your spirit would help us to see a glimpse of your glory. Just like Isaiah when he said, Woe to me, for I am in your presence and I am of a fallen generation. I pray, Father, that we would see the glory of your kingdom and without hesitation, like the pearl, would abandon everything to serve you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.